Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Are you bound for the promised land? Amen. We all have spiritual offerings that we make. We're all part of the priesthood of believers. And we're all living stones that God puts together to build his house. I so much appreciate the ministry of so many of you and this congregation and this fellowship and the spiritual offerings and sacrifices that you make every day for him. And when we come here, we have been lifted up and worshiped by our choir, by our musical program, by the leaders that have prompted us, as Clyde remain, uh, reminds us often. Sometimes what we forget is that every moment that we're here is a spiritual offering, isn't it? When the preacher steps up into the pulpit, it's not just his spiritual sacrifice that he offers, but what goes on during the preaching time and the sermon. You offer up spiritual sacrifices too. You engage with the word and the word enters your heart anew and afresh. It awakens in you new commitments and maybe even convictions that you have in your heart and your life. And you offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. My prayer is this morning as we hear the word preached that your spiritual sacrifices as well as mine will be wholly acceptable to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you, that we come in here to worship you and we leave to serve, but we also come in as priests who serve you with our spiritual offerings as we're here and we depart to worship you in every avenue of life. And may we please you in all that we say and do. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Uh, some of you were alive when that was composed and sung. Some of you weren't. But almost everybody knows who it is. It's John Lennon, 1971 album, <clears throat> after he then joined together with uh, Yoko Ono and they put together their Plastic Ono band. And on the album, Imagine, his best-selling single ever, when it came out as a single, over 1.7 million copies sold, and there have been over 200, or 200 artists that have covered it. I have a feeling that some of those artists didn't really listen to all the words. 
It's very melodic. Is that a word? Melodious. Yeah, it's very melodious. It has a nice tune, and there are a lot of good thoughts in it. The brotherhood of man and all of that, and living in peace. But of course, it is a thoroughly pagan song. Uh, Live for what? Today, here and now. We can achieve peace, maybe, by ourselves, and certainly there's no need for God. In his song entitled God, he put it this way, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. You know, I'm a little bit suspicious of anybody who talks about no greed or hunger and sharing with all the world. When he died in 1980, his estate was worth $800 million. And today it's worth about $3 billion. I have a little bit of trouble listening with conviction to words of hedonism and materialism and, frankly, a kind of pagan view of the world. I don't mean to stomp on John Lennon too much this morning, but I just did. (laughs) You see, it reflects, I think, the challenges that we have when we think about our eternal destiny. What does the Bible say about eternal destiny? You know, it mirrors, it reflects much of what materialism says today. There is no soul, the materialist would say, atheists and agnostics. You know, all we really are is flesh and blood and neurons. We're part of a natural machine, a natural order, and there's nothing spiritual about it. And then you can sing about no religion, that's okay. There is also the challenge against personal existence beyond this life. Pantheists would hold to the theory of reincarnation that says that eventually, after so many reincarnations, we are absorbed into the cosmos. The Hindus would call it Brahman. Hmm. But you see, there's no personal existence beyond this life for them. Panentheists those that believe that God is in the world and he's the mind of the world and the cosmos is his body. Remember those folks? They would say that, well, there really isn't an existence beyond this life. We are simply, those that do good are remembered by God and those that don't are not. Thinking about existence beyond this life, there are those that believe in annihilation. Uh, The Buddhists, for example, and Taoists that believe in being then obliterated, going into oblivion, a non-existence in nirvana. So one of the challenges to the biblical view of eternal destiny is that there is no such thing as a soul. A second is there's no existence beyond this life. Another challenge is, as we heard from John, is there is no heaven, and the parallel to that is there is no hell. And people that believe this way usually think one way or another. Maybe like the pantheists, they believe that we are absorbed somehow into the cosmos and we return to nature. Or annihilationists like the Buddhists. But there are also some Christians, people who call themselves Christians, who say that the evil in this world do not live in eternal damnation. They are simply annihilated, sort of like going to nirvana. And another challenge to the biblical concept of an eternal destiny is that there is at the end of this life and at the end of this 
universe, there is no judgment. There is no accountability. All of those are negative commentaries on the biblical understanding of eternal destiny. Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? On the other extreme, you have those that uh, endeavor to prove that there is by any means possible. I mentioned about a month ago at the evening service a couple of examples that I'm going to mention again this morning. In 2010, a book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, Alex Malarkey. There's a hint right there. There's something probably wrong. (laughs) Alex Malarkey supposedly, after a, a traffic accident, then ascended into heaven spiritually, and then they wrote a book about it later, and his dad, Kevin, has the rights to those books. A million copies have been sold. But then later... Alex and his mother Beth both confessed that it was all fraudulent, that none of it was true. In the same year, Heaven is Real that was published. It's an account of Colton Burpo's experience as a three-year-old when he had an emergency appendectomy. While he was out, he was there. While he was out, he was up. He went to heaven, and he sat in Jesus' lap, and the angels then sang to him. He saw Mary kneeling at God's throne. He saw Jesus on a rainbow-colored horse. They have not recanted their story, and they've sold 10 million copies of the book, and the movie has made over $100 million. Well, folks, we can't rely on those stories about our eternal destiny. We know that. There is only one place and only one way we can know anything about eternal destiny. And, of course, it's the Word of God. There is, a, there is a, um, an account that Jesus gives in Matthew, the 25th chapter. Uh, he talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats. And in that, we see some insight about our internal, eternal destiny. It doesn't tell us everything about heaven. It doesn't tell us everything about hell. But it gives us some insight of what, what is God's Word about our destiny beyond this life. It's a rather long passage. I'm going to have us remain seated today while we read it. But if you would, would you turn to Matthew 25, and I'll begin with verse number 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And and then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And then the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, To the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, that is the goats, 
Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This, of course, does not tell us everything about heaven and hell. But there are some very important things that come from this passage that really contradict all of those things that I said earlier about the challenges to the biblical understanding of eternal destiny. One is, very obviously from this passage, there is an afterlife. Secondly, there is a judgment to come and a separation in that judgment. And then also there is heaven and there's hell. Heaven is a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world and hell is eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. I know it is not popular to talk about hell today. But the Bible is very clear about it. We have an obligation to tell people that at the end of their life, they have one of two destinies facing them. And hell might be one of them. I want to talk about five things briefly this morning uh, to kind of meet the challenges of those five points against eternal destiny. One, we are living souls. Clearly, the scripture says that. We're not just material. We're not just neurons. Secondly, our souls, in fact, do survive death. Thirdly, heaven and hell are what? They are real. They exist. Fourth, judgment day is coming. There is a judgment and accountable day coming. And then finally, we have two possible destinies. The Bible is very clear about these things. The first of those is we are living souls. This morning, Scott and Molly Floyd talked to us about the first marriage. They talked about Adam and Eve. And they talked about the creation account. And remember in the creation account, it says that God did what? He formed Adam from the clay of the earth, and then he did what? He breathed into Adam and Adam did not have a soul. He became a living soul. Body and spirit together. A living soul, not just material, with the very breath of God, he became the nephesh in Genesis 1. We do have living souls. We have spirits. It's not just material matter. And body and soul are separated at the end of this life. Yesterday at the graveside for Vernon Thompson. We talked a little bit about this. You know, there's the committal. We have earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The body returns to the earth, and it's consigned to the dust. Koheleth, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, reminds us, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, but he goes on to say, as negative as he is about many things in life, he says, and the spirit will return to God who then gave it. There is a separation then at that point of the soul. And it then returns then eventually for judgment. It returns to God. And then God determines the destiny of our soul. 
We are not only living souls, but he determines the destiny of that which we call the soul. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. You see, they can't kill the soul. Don't worry about those problems in this life that threaten the body. What you need to be concerned about is rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's not talking about Satan. That is talking about God's control over our eternal destiny, our eventual spiritual body, and our soul. We are living souls. It's not just about the here and now and the material. Secondly, our souls, indeed, the Bible tells us and affirms that our souls survive death, this, this physical death. There is an eternal life beyond this physical death, and there is an eternal death beyond this physical death. The eternal life beyond this physical death, once again, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has made everything beautiful in his time. Does that sound familiar? Which passage is that a part of? There's a time for everything. And he wraps that passage up by saying that he's made everything beautiful in its time, you see, in the cosmos time, in the tick-tock time. But then he talks about the kairos time. It's not used there. That's, of course, a Greek concept. But he talks about the eternal time that goes beyond that. And he said he also set eternity in the hearts of humans. When he created Adam and Eve and when you were born, this week when Abigail Joy Becker was born on the 25th of March, she became a living soul, and in her soul was eternity built into it. He has also sent eternity into the hearts of humans. But you see, we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We can't understand all that, all that that means. There is something about the human soul that we know that survives this, this life and death. Eternal, eternal life awaits the believer. So there is an eternal life beyond this death. Jesus says to Martha, as he is about to resurrect Lazarus, he said, I am the what? I am the what? I am the resurrection and the what? And the life. Those who believe in me, and here it is, even though they die, okay, there is a physical death. Even though they die, they will live. You see, there is a life beyond the death, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That sounds contradictory. What he's saying is we die, and then we live again, and we will not die the second death. There is an eternal life that goes beyond this death, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. You can quote it, Romans 8. And it begins when it talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God, powers, principalities, height, nor depth. But it begins with what? For I am convinced that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God that we find in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is eternal life that goes beyond this physical death. We have evidence from specific instances in Scripture. It's not little boys in visions going to heaven and coming back and their parents writing books and making millions of dollars on it. No, it comes from scriptural accounts. Enoch, at the age of 365, walked with God and then he was what? He was not. Why? Because God took him. Samuel didn't want to come back at Endor, but he came back and he talked to 
King Saul. There are a lot of questions about that story and what all it means. But it does give evidence that Samuel has an existence after his death. Elijah was translated to heaven. There was an existence beyond this terrestrial ball. Moses and Elijah, where do we see them in the New Testament? Standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, recognizable. The rich man and Lazarus, they existed after death on this earth. Now, uh, some people would say, well, Jesus there is telling a parable. And that may be true in Luke's gospel. But the fact of the matter is the truth of the story is what matters. He's speaking about there is an existence after death on this earth. And the greatest witness, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Resurrected and glorified and bodily he ascended and bodily he will return. There is eternal life beyond this death. There's also eternal death beyond this death. In Revelation 20, at the end of that chapter, just before we then come to that wonderful scene of heaven in chapter 21, we're told that the sea gave up the dead, and the sea is the abode of the dead, which were in it. And death and Hades, that's another way of saying hell, gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds, and then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the what? The second death. That's the point. You see, there's this physical life, and then there's a physical death, and then there is yet beyond a second death. So beyond this life, there are two options. There is either life beyond this death, or there is an eternal death beyond this death. Heaven and hell are real, according to Scripture. Heaven is described in great detail. Before we began the worship service this morning, we read from Revelation 20, 21, the beginning of that chapter, and then Revelation 22, describing the incredi incredible beauty and glory and holiness of heaven. Heaven is where Jesus is. On the cross, one of the thieves rebuked Jesus, and the other one turned and told him, basically, shut up. <laughs> We're guilty of what we did. He's innocent. And then he turned to the Lord and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your glory. And what did Jesus say? He said, this day you will be with me. Where? In paradise. You see, heaven is paradise. It is where Jesus is. Heaven exists. When believers die, they go to their heavenly home. Yesterday at the graveside, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5. We have this earthly tent. It begins to get rickety. The poles begin to get wobbly. The framework begins to corrode and rust. And the fabric then begins to tear apart. And we begin to groan. But then we know that we have something better to come. For we know that if our earthly house, that is, this tent, is destroyed, and that's not just an if, it will happen unless the Lord comes first, that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, where? Eternal in the heavens. There is a heaven, Revelation 21, 22. Jesus says it's paradise, it's where I am. It's the eternal home that I have prepared for you. Don't worry. Don't worry. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house or what? 
many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. We have evidence. Now, here we have evidence from visions. These are visions that are not written in this century. These are visions that are biblically recorded, and they are the Word of God. Stephen, as he was being stoned, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gazed up into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, see, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they stoned Stephen and they put him to death. And as he drew his last breath, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That is a legitimate vision. He had a glimpse of glory to come. Paul speaks about I think he might have been talking about himself, but he speaks sort of like third person. He said, I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago who was caught up to the third heaven. Now, that could mean several things. Probably the first heaven is the atmosphere, the second heaven is the space beyond, and the third heaven is actually the celestial heaven. That may be one explanation of it. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows. You see, was caught up into paradise. And here he says something very important. He heard inexpressible things, things that people are not permitted to tell. Why don't we know more than we do about heaven? We have some hints. We have some descriptions in Scripture, and they're rather cryptic, and many of them are metaphorical. Those are things that are reserved for the saints to witness firsthand when they enter into the portals of heaven. There is a hell, not just a heaven. There are 23 references in the New Testament to hell. It takes the form of Hades or Gehenna, the abode of the wicked. Hades, the god of the underworld that's associated with Orcus. That is the infernal underworld of darkness, the place of disembodied spirits. Hades is really another word for hell. I know that they try to parse and make distinctions between Hades and Gehenna, but they're really, when you look at the context of the passages, they're essentially the same thing, I think. Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem. Most of you know that's where they threw the dead car carcasses in the filth and they burned it, and it burned continuously day and night. It is a metaphor then for the eternal burning fire of hell. How do we know that hell exists? Well, once again, the story of the rich man, some call him Dives. It's not in the Bible. And Lazarus. What did Jesus tell us? He said, so there was a beggar and he died. And he was carried by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man died and he was what? He was buried. In Hades, that is hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. The truth of that story is there is a paradise and there is a hell and it is described as a fiery lake in Revelation 21 but the cowardly and the unbelieving and the vile and the murderers and the sexually immoral those who practice magical arcs the idolaters and all the liars their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is the second death there is heaven and there is hell there is a judgment that is coming. There is a day of accountability. We saw that in the story today in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels are with him, then he's going to sit on his glorious throne and he's going to do what? He's going to gather all of the nations, not just some, all of the people that have ever existed, and he is going to divide them into the sheep and to the goats. The sheep on the right, the goats on the left. There's a gathering that is a coming. 
at the second coming. And there are two kinds of resurrection that will occur out of that. Jesus tells those that were listening to him when he was talking about the Father giving him the authority as the Son of Man to execute this judgment we're talking about in John the fifth chapter. He says, don't marvel at what I've just said. For you see, an hour is coming in which all of the tombs, all those that are in the tombs will hear my voice. And everybody in their tomb will come forth. And those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and to those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of damnation. There are two resurrections that come out of this judgment and there are two verdicts. Unbelievers, very clearly Paul tells the Colossians, will suffer the consequences of evil doing. He tells them for he who does wrong will receive the consequences. There are consequences for our evil actions. The consequences of wrong which that person has done and without partiality. On the other hand, believers will escape that death. They will escape the second death. When he talks, when the Lord talks to John about it, to the church at Smyrna, he says, let anyone who has an ear to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers, that is the believer in Jesus Christ, whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. So there are two kinds of resurrection, one to life, one to damnation, those that are evil and have not been saved will suffer the consequences of their evil actions, and those that are followers of Christ then will not suffer the eternal death. The basic final verdict, we're told in Revelation 20, is this. At the great white throne, if anyone's name is not found in this place, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And what is that place? What is the location? What is that thing that he's talking about? Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life. So we come to the final point. We have two possible destinies. We've, we've talked about them, but we've not described them. Heaven and hell. Hell in scripture is a place of eternal, persistent torment like a fiery lake. It continuously destroys. It doesn't destroy and obliterate and annihilate. It continually destroys the resurrected body that is then consigned and the soul in hell. It is like being in outer darkness and those passages that talk about outer darkness in the New Testament in Matthew, there are three occasions where it describes that as a place of anguish where there will be great what? Wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of damnation in Matthew 23. And the word that is used there for damnation really means a, a judgment and a separation. It's a place of separation which leads to eternal punishment. We see this in the passage that we just read in Matthew 25. They will go away, that is the goats, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want to talk a moment about that punishment. What is it? You know, some people have this idea that God takes delight in punishing people. And he has great joy in watching those that have sinned and have not followed his son Jesus Christ being consigned to hell and burning forever. I don't think that's the case. You see, the word that is used here is not that kind of word. It's not that vindictive kind of punishment that has a personal investment attached to it. It's not that God takes delight in this punishment. It's not that God enjoys seeing any creature or any of his creation suffering. He suffers with those who suffer. No, the word that is used here is a word that simply means punishment that is a consequence of disobedience. 
There's right and wrong, and if one does wrong, then there is a consequence. So what is the punishment? The punishment very clearly is this, separation. Separation at the judgment is not just a separation of the sheep from the goats. It's not just a separation of a husband and a wife that go in separate directions. It's not just a separation of family. It's not just a separation of humans. It is ultimately also, even though it includes those things, it is also a separation from, of course, God. And that's the point. You see, that's what this is about. It's not because God enjoys pushing people away. God would, the scripture tells us, that everyone would be saved. He does not enjoy that. But God in his holiness cannot admit sin into his presence. It is a metaphysical fact. Sin cannot enter into the presence of God and survive. And it's that simple. You know, some would argue, well, that's okay with me. Separation from God's all right. First of all, I don't believe in God. But even if I did believe in God, I don't even like him. And they usually cite instances from the Old Testament where he tells the Israelites to slay the Amalekites and they see him as an evil kind of God. They do not understand the Old Testament. They say, you know, it's kind of a defiant attitude. Hell's just fine with me. There's a kind of false bravado in that. I don't need God. And in fact, I'll be like with people like me and we can just keep doing what we did on earth. And I enjoyed that a great deal. Have you ever heard that kind of attitude? Hmm. The problem with that is, folks, people do not really understand the terrifying and tormenting nature of hell. The unquenchable fire may not be literal. It may be. It may be a metaphor that is, is used because we cannot even begin to describe how bad hell will be. The real pain is separation from God and everything that is good. And yet they say, well, that's okay. I don't need God. Here's what's happened. We have been created for fellowship with God. This morning, Molly and Scott talked about that. We're created for fellowship with each other, and we're created for fellowship with God. It's about relationship. I will say yet once again from the Westminster Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were created for that kind of fellowship. Now, here what's happened is in a sinful world, in a fallen world, we have suppressed that, un that truth and unrighteousness. The person that says, I don't need God, and that'll be fine with me, sin around them and in them has suppressed this truth. They really, really need God. And left unchecked, that sin, that sin dulls and eventually obliterates their desire for God. I believe this. At the judgment, when they see the Son of Man and His glory, and when they see Him face to face, there is going to be revived in them, renewed in them, a passion that they never knew before. They are going to want so much to be with God, and yet it will be too late once they see His face. Like David they will be like David in Psalm 42. As the deer pants after the water brooks. Oh, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. I think there will be millions of people that pant for God, and it is too late. The separation is final. The separation is permanent. The separation is eternal. And the thirst for God cannot be quenched in the fiery lake, whether it's metaphorical or whether it is real. The consequences of separation from God. Are there consequences? Yes. God sends rain on the good and the bad. He's, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. 
Last night, God watched over every living soul on the face of this globe, whether that person believed in, believes in him or not. The providential care of God watched over them. That will be withdrawn. Eternal darkness, isolated from anything that is good, being a permanent outsider. In the presence of the devil and his host who are tormented forever, we're told in Revelation 20 that they will be cast into the lake of fire. And Peter tells us, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. What that says is we're the person that does not believe and is consigned to hell will be in the place of the eternal liar and tormentor. What else is hell about? God's love is gone forever. He loves everyone, but that love will no longer be available. We were created to have fellowship with him. And then that, that love is withdrawn. We're told by John that perfect love casts out what? Fear. What happens when that perfect love is withdrawn? There is nothing in eternity but fear and foreboding and dread and incredible loneliness. But look at heaven. Look at heaven. It's being with the Lord. When we depart from this earth, I am hard-pressed, Paul says, to make a decision between the two, whether to stay here or to leave, but I want you to know it is far better to depart and to be with Christ. Yes, we are confident, he tells the Corinthians, and we are well-pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Heaven is being with the Lord. And imagine Imagine, heaven is almost unimaginable. It's almost beyond imagination. It's almost beyond our ability to conceive things which the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, and have not been placed into the hearts of human beings. We do not know all that God prepares for those that love him. When we look at Revelation 21 and 22, when we look at the flip side of hell, when we look at heaven, we don't see just a snapshot in those two chapters, we see a cinemagraphic kaleidoscope of heavenly imagery. We see a panorama of a renewed earth and a regenerated heaven. We see the radiant bride, that is the Lamb, Jesus Christ, descending in his stronghold, the new Jerusalem, portrayed in brilliant colors that are almost unimaginable and a rich display of wealth and strength. Every facet of every one of those 12 gems that is set then into the, into the city, into the foundation Every diamond that encrusts the walls of heaven, every square inch of mirror-polished gold serves one purpose, and that is to reflect the Shekinah glory of God and his presence. There will no longer be a sun or a moon. We don't need it because he is the sun. He is the light. We come to Revelation 22, and we come to the pinnacle then of our eternal destiny where the crystal water of life throws, flows through the, through the kingdom by the throne of God. And there is the tree that has the 12 fruits for the healing of the nations, for the pilgrims that arrive there. What a glorious and splendid picture. Do I believe that heaven has gold in the streets and diamonds and jewels and pearls on the gates? It may. I think maybe because Revelation is, of course, apocalyptic in its terminology that those are just the best ways that John had to describe something that is unimaginable. Imagine 
There's no heaven. Imagine. There's no hell. That's no imagination whatsoever. The glory of all the nations will flow into it and no impurity will be allowed. It is the place of eternal life where we will serve the Lord and we will reign forever and only those whose names in the book of life will be admitted. So I have one point of application. The Lord is near. The Lord is near while we live. The Lord is near when we hear his word. The Lord is near when his Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and our lives. The Lord is near when he convicts. The Lord is near when he offers the gift of eternal salvation. The Lord is near when he says, if you believe in my son Jesus Christ, and if you ask for forgiveness of your sin, and if you submit to him as Lord and Savior, he prepares a place for you in my house. And if he prepares a place for you in my house, he will come and receive you unto himself so that where he is, you may be also. He is near and the offer is near today. It is available. All one has to do is have enough imagination just to reach just beyond the horizon and in faith grasp the presence of the Lord that he offers. Isaiah puts it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. The fact of the matter is, there will come a day when he cannot be found and when he is not near, and that day will be too late. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the offer of salvation through your son Jesus Christ and for the wonderful promise of an eternal home in heaven with you and with your son Jesus Christ in fellowship in the Holy Spirit. My prayer is this morning, if anyone has been listening and convicted by your spirit, whatever it is that has caused a barrier between you and them, that they will let you break down that barrier. The convicting power of your Holy Spirit will draw that person through the power and the presence of Jesus Christ to accept the gift of his shed blood for the remission of their sins. And then they will accept him as Lord and Savior. And they will claim the wonderful gift of eternal life and that you will prepare a place in heaven for them. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.